First Chronicles 29, verse 1. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. With all my resources, I have provided for the temple of my God, gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble, all of these in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of God, over and above everything else I have provided for his holy temple. 3,000 talents of gold, gold of offer, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings, for the gold work and the silver work, and for all the work done by the craftsmen. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of families, the officers of tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave toward the work of the temple of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of brawn, and 100,000 of talents of iron. Any who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody, custody of Jehiel the Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. We um, actually looked, if you were with us on Thanksgiving Eve, at the prayer that comes immediately after this as kind of our focus for Thanksgiving Eve. And I, uh, I wanted to come back to it um, because of something that really stood out to me leading up to that prayer. This, uh, this sermon, in many ways, is going to serve as sort of a summary of, of the teaching that we've had on this idea of covenant and kingdom. And the slides on the screen that I showed you last week is a way of kind of visually bringing this all together. It's not that we're going to stay away from these ideas, but in terms of talking about kind of laying that foundation as we move into Advent, this kind of concludes our time in understanding these two uh, twin ideas that I think are foundational to both reading and understanding Scripture and understanding our relationship our discipleship in following Christ. And just again, very, very quickly, just if you weren't here with us, you have covenant and kingdom, and they're represented by two triangles. And the understanding of covenant, as we've talked about, is relationship. That the starting point is to understand that we are not alone, and that we have a relationship, and the most important relationship that we have is with God. But what's key, and many people may even believe in God, is understanding that that relationship is to be understood first and foremost as that God is our Father. There's lots of ways that we can visualize God, and they affect how we understand that relationship. But the primary way Scripture wants us to understand, Jesus speaks of God, is as our Father. And in understanding that God is our Father, that then shapes, is intended to shape our sense of self, 
our identity. Many of us struggle throughout our lives. It's what teenage years are all about. Who am I? Why am I here? When you understand that the creator of the universe, God, is your father, not some distant, angry God, not some absentee landlord, but your father, your identity, your sense of self, primarily comes from knowing that he says that we are his children. We are not just his servants, slaves, playthings. We're his children. And out of the confidence of knowing that we're his children, that's where our identity comes from, then we find our purpose. How do we live our lives? We live our lives dependent upon our Father, wanting to make our Father proud, desiring to do what he calls us to do, to, to reflect and represent him. I mean, we want to bear the family resemblance. And in that sense, that dependence, that obedience, is not a hard thing. It's a very freeing thing. And as we talked about, when we don't understand this right, when we get it reversed, that's where we get into the problems that we have. When we start at the other end and our relationship is based upon independence, trying to prove ourselves, our worth, our right to exist, to establish our legacy so that when we die, no one forgets us. This is where everything we do is trying to for forge our identity and it's just, it's endless. It's never, it's, we're never satisfied, it's never stable because people's opinions change. People's memories <laughs> change. Our own sense of what matters changes. And so it's an unshaky ground. And what happens when we're independent and everything we do is based on trying to establish an identity, we have a different relationship. We feel like we're alone. Or if we reach up to God, we feel like he's not, we're not, it's not possible for us to connect with this God, that this God is distant from us. It's so crucial that we understand the, the right way that it works because this is our security. This is our confidence, as we talked about last week. The covenant is our confidence. It's our, it's our footing. And then out of that, we can then move to what Jesus explicitly calls us to, but what God all along has desired, which is for his kingdom to reign. He didn't just create the earth to have it become what it's become. You know, God knows there are things wrong with our lives and our world. God created the world in a good way. It was all good. And so the understanding is that when we know who we are, when that relationship is secure, then we can understand our responsibility. Going back to creation and reestablished in Christ, that God's not just our father, but God's our king. God is the king. And as the king, our dad has entrusted us with authority. He said, as my children, I've given you authority. You can take care of all this at the beginning of creation, and you can help me to restore and transform all of this. I give you authority, Jesus says, to do that. And out of that authority, not our own strength, not our own power, we have power. We have the ability to do it. And again, when we inverse this, when we try to grab power, when we try to do things by our own strength in order to, to establish our authority, who says I'm in charge? Let me show you how big my stick is. That'll tell you who's in charge. We have chaos. And we don't have a singular king. We have all the division that we have here. But when we know who we are, our relationship, we are able to live into our responsibility and we have the authority and power we need to see the change that we want, the redemption, the reconciliation, all the things that we talk about, all the things that outside of church enter into our fairy tales, but when kids grow up, we say, well, that's just a fairy tale. It's not, it's true. That's covenant and kingdom. Here, in 1 Chronicles 29, is a great way, I think, to summarize all of this. So I'm going to keep that up there as I take you through what I see in 1 Chronicles 29. First, if you weren't here, a little background. There's, this is coming at a time of a leadership transition. Leadership is shifting from David to Solomon. You may have picked that up in Bob's reading. Uh, it's in the closing chapters of 1 Chronicles, David's been king for, of Israel for 40 years. 
He's reigned in the city of Jerusalem. He's enjoyed the comfort and splendor of a beautiful palace. But he's also come to realize that the Ark of the Covenant, that symbol of God's presence among the people, has remained in the tabernacle, that portable tent that they carried through Egypt, or from, excuse me, through the wilderness to get to the promised land. And so there's kind of a, you know, I'm living in this palatial structure, and yet God's presence is in the, the portable tent. And David wants to build a house for the Lord in the center of the city for the presence, his presence to be you know, fixated for all the people there. Great idea. But God says, not you. Great idea, but you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it because you have too much blood on your hands, David, but your son Solomon's going to do it. And so David doesn't get to build the temple, but he gets to create the plans for it. He gets to pass the baton to Solomon, giving him directions. And in a way, this is, a, is sort of a passing of the authority and power in terms of being able to build this temple. And so the first thing that we heard David as the king in one of his last acts calls the people together to say, okay, this is a transition to Solomon. And he is going to be the one to build this temple. And he invites the people to be a part of this building project. The thrust of his message in 1 Chronicles 29 is thanksgiving. And that's the prayer that we looked at on Thanksgiving Eve. It even begins beforehand. But his call to the people is a response. He calls the people to consecration. I came back to this passage, even though I talked about it on Thanksgiving Eve, because in verses 1 through 9, I was just really captured by one word. When David says in the midst of presenting from his own wealth and resources for the temple, he says, who then will offer willingly, will offer willingly consecrating themselves today to the Lord? Consecrating themselves today. That word consecrate is not one we use a lot. Try to use it in a sentence later today and have people go, huh, what? It's not one that we use a lot. It's, it's used in the Bible often exclusively in the Old Testament for the priesthood. The priesthood that's established through Levi, it's used to talk about the ordination, meaning the blessing, the anointing of the priests. When an Old Testament priest was ordained, he was consecrated into the service of the Lord, meaning everything that he had, his life, his gifts, his skills, his competency were all devoted to the Lord, consecrated, set apart, wholly set apart to the Lord. Now, if you're familiar with the story in the Old Testament, the thing that's interesting about David using this word consecrate here is that the only people who could be priests were from the tribe of Levi. So not everyone could be a priest. And yet David invites and challenges the people to be priest-like, to orient their lives to God in the same posture and dedication as the priesthood. Little side note, I, I would point to this as almost a, an early, maybe even prophetic word of David pointing to a later understanding that we have in the Christian faith, one that Martin Luther championed in part of the Reformation, the priesthood of all believers. David is inviting the people to be priest-like, to be dedicated, consecrated to the Lord. And what's interesting, if you notice too, is if you, and if you have it open in front of you, it's fascinating. David does not say consecrate your gift to the Lord. David says, his emphasis is, when you give this gift, you are consecrating yourself. This is very important to understand and helpful for us as closing out this series. Discipleship is about consecration. All of this is about discipleship. And discipleship is about consecration. Disciples, us, we must submit ourselves, surrender ourselves in order to follow a master. 
Just take away Jesus for a second. In order to be a disciple, you have to submit and surrender yourself to a master. Otherwise, you're not a disciple. You're not following. To be disciples, we have to submit and surrender ourselves to a master. We have to submit, disciples submit their learning, their living, and their loyalty to follow their master. They follow their master in learning not what they want to learn. Disciples don't learn what they want to learn when they submit to a master. They submit to being taught by the master and how to think the way the master thinks. That's what discipleship is all about. I want to know what you know. I want to learn from you. I want to think the way you think. Disciples want to know what the master believes. Disciples want to believe what the master believes. Beloved in Christ, as we begin to unpack this understanding of consecration, let me ask you, is that your relationship with our master, with Jesus Christ? Do you want to think the way that Jesus thinks? Do you want to believe what Jesus believes? I imagine most of us would say amen. But in the practical reality of our lives, is Jesus for you the smartest person? In the practical reality of your life, is Jesus the most savvy person that you can think of to ask when you're thinking what you think? When you need to decide what you need to decide? Dallas Willard is someone who raised this question for us in a great book called The Divine Conspiracy. This understanding that we can be devoted to Jesus, and yet for most of us, we wouldn't rank. If someone just randomly asked you, who would you say is the smartest person who ever lived? Most people wouldn't say Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Don't you think Jesus is probably the smartest person who ever lived if we, he is who he says he is? If we believe he I mean, if he created everything, he's probably the smartest person who ever lived. Yet our default response is not to think of Jesus that way. This is a hole in our discipleship. To be consecrated is to say, I want to think the way the master thinks. I want to believe what the master believes. And that means that when I think, when I engage my mind, when I'm perplexed, when I'm puzzled, when I'm struggling, the, if, you, know, you always want advice. The first person I'm going to, the best advice I can get is Jesus. Is Jesus the smartest person in your life? Consecration is about thinking the way the master thinks, but consecration is also about living the way the master lives. Living the way the master lives. Do we want to live the way that Jesus lived? And the rubber kind of meets the road when we go, well, Jesus kind of ended up on that cross. Hmm. Could I have all of that but... And it's interesting that Jesus points specifically and says, hey, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. If you want to follow me, you're going to have to die to yourself. Do we want to live the way the master lives? The two questions that ought to frame every thought and every action that we have are, what is Jesus doing? And the second question is, is how can I follow Jesus in what he is doing in what I am doing? Do you think that way? Do you live that way? Do we get up each day and ask, what is Jesus doing today? Or do we say, well, Jesus did. Jesus did. No, Jesus is doing. What is Jesus doing today? And that's the first question. Do we even think about, what is Jesus doing today? What is Jesus doing in my, right in front of me? And then asking, how can I do, be a part of what he's doing through what I'm doing? Consecration is being wholly set apart to God, and it means getting up and realizing our master's at work, and we want to live the way our master lives, so that means we want to be doing what our master's doing. Now, 
in all of this, if you're starting to, you know, the blood pressure's starting to rise or you're starting to feel a little hot, what David puts to the people here, what Jesus puts to us as our master is not compulsory. It's an invitation and it's a challenge. Discipleship is an invitation and a challenge. David's in many ways, channeling something that Jesus unpacks in a much larger way when David invites the people and yet challenges them. He invites them to willingly offer more than gifts, more than gold and silver, more than bronze and iron, more than precious stones. It's an invitation to give their whole lives to the Lord in love and loyalty for the service of the kingdom. That's an incredible invitation, but it is also an incredible challenge. To be consecrated into the service of the master, to be a disciple, beloved, is understanding the invitation and the challenge. Very often at communion we sing, and maybe we'll make a change today, hint, hint, Drew, um, maybe we'll make a change today to sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. You remember the lyrics? It's one of my favorite hymns. When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, I love the stanza that goes like this. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's self-consecration. That's consecration to the Lord. It's saying, Lord, your gospel is so great. You, your grace to me is so great. You are the master that the only way I can respond is to give myself back to you. If I owned all the stuff in the world, it wouldn't be enough to give to you. So I have to give you myself, my all to you. That's the kind of consecration that David is invoking here. That's the invitation and challenge of discipleship. Giving more than just a token, more than just a part of ourselves. That's why the part of the service where we pass around the plate is just representative of the whole. That's why coming to church and worship on Sunday is just part of the whole. We're missing the point if we miss the whole of the invitation and challenge. God wants it all. God wants us all. Offering everything. He wants our whole life, the whole of our heart, the whole of ourself consecrated to God. And again, you, if you haven't done it recently, and I've kind of pointed you in this direction, for your prayer life, if you want to just amplify your prayer life, if you want to tune up, pray through the Psalms. And one of the things you will see repeatedly through the Psalms is this, if there's nothing else that's understood, is that God wants us all. All. And it, it's, it's, it really pushes us in terms of how we pray. The vision of our prayers, the words that we speak, the Psalms push us in, in all the ways that we are in all the different positions we can be in emotionally and spiritually. And this isn't just an Old Testament idea. Like I said, it's not just even something that Jesus said and you know, people are just you know, in, interpreting one way. Paul, who writes more words than any other in the New Testament, Paul, remember in a letter to the Romans, gives us the same idea of consecration, the same idea of discipleship. Paul, in that letter to the Romans, in chapter 12, points out that the whole sacrificial system, everything that came before, it was symbolic. It was token of a larger invitation and commitment 
Paul has come to this understanding as a Jew and he tries to pass on that as disciples we worship and follow Jesus by offering ourselves to the Lord as living sacrifices. The reason why the sacrificial system doesn't exist anymore is because it's not necessary. Jesus has accomplished what that pointed to, but also because that was a token of, of an even larger invitation and challenge of offering our lives as living sacrifices to God. Now, if you remember, again, we don't like to go here, sacrifice means that you get cut, you bleed, you grow, you mature. This image, we need to really focus here. Sacrifice involves struggle, invitation, but challenge. But out of that challenge comes growth, maturity. That's what Paul will point to. Who this day... David asks, Jesus asks in a different way. Paul asks, who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? I can only speak for myself. I want to consecrate myself today, every day to the Lord. I want to be set apart for his purpose. I've lived these triangles the wrong way. And it's exhausting. It's maddening. It's toxic. It kills you. It doesn't bring life. I, I want to, to live differently. I want to give not just what I have. I don't just want to give what I have. I want to give every part of who I am to God. All of it. I want to surrender all and lay myself at his feet so he can use me as he wills. Because I don't know about you, but in the inconsistency of my life, when I am surrendered and submitted, when I am consecrated to the Lord's purpose and I get out of the way, those are the best moments of my life. They are the moments upon which I stand to be able to stand in front of you now and do what I'm doing. The other stuff God's worked through in spite of me. <laughs> I want to prepare with all my might for the house of God. I want to serve him and love him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Every time I hear Jesus sum up the law, I get it. I want it. And so what I'm doing, what I'm asking you to do, encouraging you to do as one who is being discipled and seeks to disciple others, which is what it's all about, not just for the pastor to the congregation, but for each one of us, being discipled as we seek to disciple others. I want, I'm asking God, my Father, to help me to answer his invitation into covenant, to continue to re realign me, reorient me to my relationship with him, because I don't know about you, but I often get it out of whack. I often mess it up, and I need God to continue to remind me who I am. Why am I doing what am I, am I doing? And I need God not only to help me to answer his invitation of covenant to be secure and confident in that relationship, but I'm also asking God and seeking him, submitting, surrendering, because he's the only one who can help me meet the challenge of being a part of his kingdom. I cannot bear the responsibility, the power and authority that God has entrusted to me unless I completely submit to my king. And let me tell you, in my life, in those moments when I've half submitted, quarter submitted, three-fourths of the way, 99%, it's always bad. It's bad. Because a little bit of power and authority outside the will of God can do a lot of damage. We've all experienced that. So I need God to help me to meet the challenge of being a part of his kingdom. My prayer, my desire, like the psalmist, is God, make me willing. I love that in this, by the way, how often it's pop, it pops out. I mentioned this on Thanksgiving Eve, willingly. Lord, make me willing. Sometimes that's the foundational prayer. Just make me willing. Make me dedicated. Gosh, I, my brain goes five different directions, let alone 5,000 sometimes. My heart is so fickle. 
My at times, my spirit is so weak. God, make me dedicated. Help me to be singular in my focus. And God, make me generous. I, we're entering into the most wonderful time of the year. And it's an interesting parallel every time this year comes around that we're encouraged to be generous at the same time we're in shopping malls elbowing people and get the heck out of my way and that's my Black Friday deal. People waited in line for days before Black Friday. I mean, you just drive by. We drove home and the Walmart parking lot looked like, you know, it, it's ugly there, man. People, something bad's happening there. I mean, cars can't get in. People are running into the Walmart. God calls us to be generous, and I pray, God, help me to be generous in offering all that I have that I am to him. And back to that Black Friday thing. Do you see, even with Christmas, and this is what we're going to touch on, we've got it all wrong even when we celebrate Christmas. We think Christmas is about giving stuff. We've got to get it to a Black Friday sale and get a good deal to give. And the best gifts that we can give are the things that God's already given us. You don't need to wait for days for a Black Friday sale. You don't need to elbow and jump over people in order to grab that one thing that, that, so that that person knows that you love them. This fits here too. How do we communicate our identity? How do we communicate who our father is? By not feeling like we have to buy stuff in order to earn or prove our love to the people in our lives. We have better gifts to give. And they're not in limited supply. They don't go on sale. When David asked the question to the people, and maybe this is kind of where you're at, you notice in the passage they gave all kinds of stuff. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, precious stones. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm alone in this, but sometimes part of why I do go to the store or wait in those lines or look for those deals is because sometimes I think my stuff isn't good enough. Sometimes I think my stuff isn't good enough because after all, it's not gold. God doesn't need anything from us. God desires. God desires everything from us because God desires all sorts of things to build his house. He doesn't need, but he wants what I have. That's understanding the triangle in the right way. He doesn't need. I'm not trying to prove myself to God. He wants, because he's my father, what I have. And that's very, very freeing. And what's even more freeing, again, to the other triangle, what does he want that I have? He wants just what he's already given me. I don't have to come up with my own authority or power. He wants what he's already given me. So in receiving what I offer, in receiving what I offer, he's reminding me that I'm precious to him. Do you understand that? And how often it's the opposite? I'm trying to give in order to say, am I good enough? Am I precious enough? Am I worthy enough? And instead, God says, I want you. I don't need. I want you to give from what I've given you. And when you give what I've already given you back to me, that's my way of telling you, you're precious to me. You're needed. You have what it takes. You have something to offer. You are an important part of his plan. You are an important part of his reign. You are an important part of his kingdom. The Lord doesn't need anything from us, but he's delighted to make us companions and helpers. And he delights still in doing that. And when we give of ourselves, when we give of ourselves willingly, when we dedicate ourselves to him, that's our praise. That's our song of praise. 
We can come in here and we can create a liturgy, prayers, songs, and all that. But the true praise that we offer the Lord is, again, what that token represents, which is lives that are about giving back to God from what he's given us. That's what Paul means by living sacrifice. And so for us, church, when we're still fighting about worship, don't we get it? It doesn't matter what song we sing or how we sing it. It doesn't matter how we pray extemporaneously or written prayers. It doesn't matter how we receive communion. It doesn't matter what our sanctuary looks like. It matters to us, but what matters to God is none of this. What matters to God is this, being given to him. We're fighting about the wrong things. With that in mind, what do you have? that God can use for the edification of his body. What do you have? What is in your life already? Whenever I ask that question as a pastor, people automatically grab their wallet. Yeah, and that's part of it. That's part of it. We all have different resources, and God has provided those. That's part of it. Some of us will look at our watch. I'm really busy. I don't really have any time. Yeah, that's part of it, too. But those are representative of, of deeper things. Who has God created you to be? Do you know your identity? God created you fearfully and wonderfully, and you have natural gifts that God seeks to use for his purposes and for his kingdom. And then God seeks within those natural gifts, when you have been in, come into relationship with Christ, supernatural power. Oh, I don't want any of that. <laughs> yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. You know, you, on, the t on the one hand, you read the scriptures, it's, it's an interesting thing, and we go, man, look at what's happening in the book of Acts. Man, look at that. I want a burning bush. I want someone to get healed, but I don't want me to be a part of it. I just want to see it. Guys, God has supernatural power that he promises for us that's there. What, when you struggle with, well, what do I have to give to God? You don't have to look far. You have to know yourself. You have to know how God has created you, what God's put in front of you. That's what he's deposited into you. That's what God wants you to give back. But here's the thing, and maybe this is why we struggle so much when we, we hear this idea of giving ourselves to God. You, I've said this before. You can't give away what you don't have. And what I mean by that is not that you don't have it, because you have it, but you can't give away what you haven't fully received. It's there, but you haven't received it. And you can't give away what you don't have joyfully. If you believe, you don't have it. And what I mean by this, and I this is a whole other sermon in and of itself, and it's been preached before, and it'll probably be preached again by me and pastors down the line till Jesus comes back, a life running on empty is not the kind of life that God creates. If you are just getting by, if that's what you think this all comes down to, I'm just getting by. You know what? I'm just running like a freight train and I'm just trying to slide in the door on Sunday, collapse in the pew and fill me up Jesus. <laughs> Ain't gonna work. It's not gonna work. If you are just getting by without the power of the risen Christ, not the idea of Jesus in your head, not the five-hour energy Jesus that you're drinking, <laughs> if you're not having the power of the risen Jesus and the fruit of the Spirit coming through in your life, your life is not effective, you know this already, and your life is not full, you know this too. 
And if you keep coming and saying, and some have walked away from church, you know what, all this stuff, and I don't feel effective, I don't feel like my life's full, this is all bogus. Yeah, it's bogus if you're not receiving what God's put right in front of you. Beloved, many of us are breathing, but we're not living the abundant life that Jesus offers. It's not a secret. It's not for the elite. It's for all. Many of us have the seed of faith. We've received the seed of faith, but we're, we're holding on to that seed rather than putting it into the soil of our lives. How long are you going to hold on to that seed and not put it in the soil of your life? Because if you put it in the soil of your life, God can bring growth. Another image of consecration, taking that seed and planting it, allowing it to be planted in our lives. Because Jesus says that seed will take root and it will bear much fruit. What does the soil of your, look like, your life look like today? What does the soil of your life look like today? Are you coming to church in one hand with this seed? I got it. I believe Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I've got it. But the soil of your life is dry, hard. What kind of things are enriching or depleting the soil of your life? Are you coming to church every day and you're pulling out the seed out of your pocket? I got it. I remember the day. I grew up in a Christian home. I didn't even have to. My parents gave me this seed. And yet, meanwhile, you're holding on to that seed, but you're pouring all kinds of toxic stuff into the soil of your life. All kinds of junk. There are bugs and all kinds of garbage in there. And you come to church, and you take out the seed, and it's like Jack and the Beanstalk. <laughs> and you're missing the point that the seed goes in the soil. And that what we do when we come here is Jesus tills the soil. What's that doing in there? That's weeds. That's junk. Oh my gosh, that's disgusting. Get that out of there. What does the soil of your life look like? What are you putting in that soil to either enrich or deplete that soil? There's so much, so much fruit that God desires. So much that we have to offer just waiting to be cultivated, discovered, and it's not just for us, though it will satisfy us, but it's for his kingdom. There are people out there when we look and we say, how come I can't lead people to Christ? How come more people aren't knowing the Jesus that I know? They're waiting for the fruit. They're waiting for the fruit. When they look and they see dry, parched soil that's got a couple of twigs, what do you have to offer? You go to the store, you look for the good fruit. You pick up the bag that's on special that's all in there and it's all nasty and moldy. You don't buy that. You pick up the fruit that you smell and you touch and you can't wait to get home and have it. What does your life look like? Beloved, in the end, only the things built on Jesus will last. If Jesus is our master, then the only things worth following and doing and the only things that will last are the things that our master is about. That's why he's the master. The word of the Lord is clear about this. Heaven and earth will pass away, but our God, our Father, and our King, and His house will endure forever. But as for the rest, His holy fire, the holiness of God, the perfection of God, will burn away everything else. Burn away everything else done apart from Him. Many men and women have tried. Nothing lasts apart from the will of God. Nothing. Paul puts it this way, and it's we are God's fellow workers. 
You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed to how he builds. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work, what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. Do you not know, this is the best part, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, whose temple you are. If your life right now is feeling kind of shaky, God has this tendency to shake up things in our lives to show us if we're building on other foundations than Christ. God has a tendency to shake up our lives when, to show us when we are building on other foundations in Christ. How's your foundation? Is it cracked? Is it shaky? Is it level? Again, and when you hear all this, it's not all about you doing all this. It's about receiving, yielding, consecrating yourself to let God do through you. That's discipleship. It's not your authority and power, fix your house, make the fruit grow. It's God, the Spirit, doing it through us. Are we building on the only foundation will last? Are we centered on Christ? This is the high point near the high point of Israel's story. Temple's going to be built. Solomon's going to be the greatest king. Israel's going to be at the height of her power. But you know this story. You know what happens next. The glory days should go higher and higher, lead to exile, because the people build on a different foundation. Because the people are no longer centered. The temple is in the center of their city, but their lives are not centered on the temple. And the big, just so you don't feel alone in this, any of us, the big challenge for Israel when the, great, the glory days lead into exile is they understand their problem. <laughs> they understand their problem as being a loss of power. And God continues to say, it's not a loss of power, it's a loss of faith. You've lost faith. The heck with this. You know, it's not always just about what I, the words on the paper. Last thing. In this passage is another glimpse, and we often point to Acts, that passage in Acts, they were all eating and sharing what they had to need together, and that's a beautiful picture. But here in the Old Testament, you have a picture of what the life of discipleship looks like. That, that reaction of the people at the end is a glimpse of what our community the larger community, our community, is meant to look like. The people rejoiced because they had, been, they had given willingly with a single mind. They had offered freely to the Lord, and King David also rejoiced greatly. That's a picture. It's a picture of what we're to look like. Beloved, there's joy as we give to the Lord's work. There's joy as we consecrate ourselves. It leads to rejoicing. If the rejoicing's not coming, then maybe the consecration isn't happening. It's the dedication 
It's the willing, willing, willing submission of our lives that leads to the rejoicing. The Lord wants us to respond with joy, but that joy comes when we give everything. Not just our money, not just our time, but our lives as living sacrifices. And this is so critical, and why this passage is so powerful for me is because we often forget it, but yet we heard it from Paul. Here's the deal. We're still giving to the work of the Lord. We're still giving to the building of the temple. We're still giving to the building of the temple. Solomon built it and thought it was done, but again, as we often do, he missed the token for the greater reality. And the greater reality is, is David is speaking to us through these words on behalf of Jesus, calling us as a people to consecrate ourselves because we're still building the temple. There is no physical temple. There is no building we can point to as our temple other than this. But the temple is being built in and all around us. Again, Paul, in another letter, you start to connect these dots, says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. Beloved, the temple is still being built. The temple is still being built. The temple of the Lord is being built here and now and across the world. As men and women, boys and girls, hear the good news about Jesus and are added to the temple, to the Lord's dwelling, the body of Christ. In this sense, then, how we ought to see ourselves, how we ought to see what we're about, the church, every church, is not really a building at all. It's a building site. It's not a building at all. It's a building site. The God of grace makes the first move. He lays the foundation upon which everything else is built. He gives us life and strength and every good gift. He sent the Lord Jesus into the world to die for our sins on the cross, to clear away the way to welcome us home, to bring us into this cosmic temple building project. And he gives us the gift of faith to receive his promises and believe them. And then in doing that, the giver of all things doesn't need anything from us. He graciously invites us and challenges us to give to his work to be a part of his kingdom. The invitation is a joyous opportunity. But make no mistake, this joyous invitation is also a demanding challenge. We are invited to be a part of this great building project, to fully receive God's grace, but we must let go of everything else and dedicate ourselves wholly to the Lord. As the body of Christ, we are still a work in progress. Praise God. There's more to be done. We're in the building trade. We're building the Lord's dwelling, his temple. All that we have and all that we are is intended to go towards this building project. Nothing we bring is wasted. Nothing is scrap. Nothing lacks value or possibility. That's the invitation. But the challenge is this, how we build. What we build together has a direct reflection on our children and our grandchildren. What we do now affects the next generation. What we don't do now affects the next generation. So beloved in Christ, are we willing to consecrate ourselves to the Lord this day? May we offer ourselves willingly May we experience together the joy that comes from being set apart, from being, if you will, all in with the Lord. And may we, 
Thank God our Father for the incredible invitation of this covenant, of this relationship, even as we seek His grace to rise to the challenge of our responsibility of being a part of His kingdom. This is covenant and kingdom. This is our relationship and responsibility. We've got work to do. God's got work to do through us. We're in this together. Amen? Amen. Amen.